What are the causes of Western greatness and how is it under threat? We'll discuss this and nothing else on this edition of The Editors. I'm Rich Lowry, and I'm joined as always by... Andrew, Andrew Stutterford, Joseph Giuseppe Tiamamo, Lacante, <laughs> I'm sure I screwed that up, and the notorious MBD, Michael Brendan Doherty. You are, of course, listening to a National Review podcast. Our sponsors of this episode are thefire.org, Act and Unwind, and Babel. More about all of them in due course. If for some reason you're not already following us on streaming service, you can find us everywhere from Spotify to iTunes. And if you like what you hear here, please consider giving us a glowing five-star review on iTunes. If you don't like what you hear here, please forget I said anything. And before I do anything else, let's hear from the fire.org. Do you know only one in three Americans believe we can fully exercise our free speech rights? That's why fire is stepping up to protect freedom of expression for all Americans, no matter where you're from or what you believe. The Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression, or FIRE, knows free speech makes free people Fire will always be a principled, nonpartisan, nonprofit defender of your rights. Join the fight for free speech at www.thefire.org. So we know there's some uh, news going on. There's always at least some between Christmas and New Year's, but we thought this week would be a good opportunity to step back and do a 30,000 feet episode of the editors about. The West and what made it what it is and how it might be eroding or not. And I thought it'd be good to um, uh, add our, our friend, uh, my good friend, Joe Lacante, who we've never had before. He's a visiting professor at Grove City College, senior fellow at the Institute on Religion and Democracy, writes occasionally for nationalreview.com and is a, a wonderful guy. You will learn very quickly in this podcast that the uh, the dour, downbeat MBD will meet have met his match in the upbeat and chipper Joe Lacante. And unless Sarah is, is really careful about this, if you listen like really closely, you will be able to hear the sound of Joe talking with his hands, like the swishing back and forth of these vigorous hand motions as Joe engages on these questions. So, Joe, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Rich. Great to be here. All right. So let's let's start with you. We're going to divide this up. We'll do some do some ancients, do some Middle Ages, do some modernity and do do some where, where we are now. So what do we owe to the ancients? We have this uh, this great legacy of um, you know classic literature that uh, used to be foundational in the West certainly was foundational for the, the founding uh, fathers, m- many of them. Um, but you know we're not, uh, and, and we have this tradition of democracy from the Greeks and uh, uh, law from the Romans. But you know we're not we're not gathering on the hillside and and having uh, all the adult males deciding questions and entirely different. Um, system than that. And the, the founding fathers certainly learned from the failures <clears throat> of, of ancient republics. But in, any, anything else that we can trace back to, you know, it was, was a, a great period in the West, but how much do we owe to it? No, excellent question. I mean, the, the golden age of Greek democracy is just worth pausing on for a second here, Rich, because nowhere else in the ancient world are people thinking about this idea of government by consent, right? That's what mm-hmm. that's what democratia, demos the people, kratia power, power to the people. That's what the Greeks uh, gave to the world, that concept of government by consent. And you're right, it collapses, it collapses into kind of a moral social chaos, mobocracy. 
Uh, but let's think about the other contribution of the Greeks, and that, of course, is philosophy, whether that's Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. I mean, just start with Socrates. Here you have a guy, unlike anyone else, who really believes that there is a path to truth through reason. He really believes in the concept of truth, and it needs to be defended. We need to question our assumptions, of course, the Socratic method. So what do you have with Socrates? You've got the first martyr, really, for free speech, the right to think, the right to question the establishment. And Socrates, as we all know, will face the cancel culture of, uh, uh, of the Athenian citizens. And that's what really ticks off his, his student Plato in a big way. Plato looks at all that and he thinks, well, democracy isn't going to work. We need some kind of a, uh, a republic based on philosopher kings because mobocracy killed his mentor, killed Socrates. Let's try something else. Let's try a, a society based on philosopher kings. And then Aristotle, if we're just racing through here, it seems to me Aristotle looks at all that and he thinks, no, that's not going to work. That's too utopian. We need something else. And that's where Aristotle is such an important thinker because unlike no one else in the ancient world, he is thinking carefully about the nature of human nature and the nature of political societies, the idea of a mixed government. That's before we even get anywhere close to Rome. So let me just pause there and say that that's not a bad contribution. So the, the idea of democracy, even though if, obviously there's not a, a, a direct linear connection because that tradition is quickly disrupted and this, this philosophical tradition uh, valuing uh, thought and um, uh, free, free conscience, at least on a, a certain level. Yeah. So MBD, you, you buy that? Any, any thoughts on the Romans? I mean, we, we have one, had one of the greatest movies in the 20th century, had, had a, a toga party. So cl clearly the, the Roman influence was, was, is there at a certain level. <laughs> yeah, the, the Roman influence is there. I mean, it's interesting how much the Roman uh, imagination survives the Roman Empire itself into the Middle Ages, um, its ideals, its literature. I mean, basically every educated person in the Middle Ages was reading Virgil. Um, and, and contemplating it, even though there was this huge disjuncture between the classical world of Rome and what followed, um, not just in the, in the political social organization where you move away from the empire and you move to, um, you know, the early middle ages, but, um, the imagination, I mean, I think, uh, a book that came out not so long ago with Tom Holland's book dominion, which mm -hmm. kind of highlights the way that um, how foreign values of mercy and justice oh, yeah. I mean, for the poor and, and other things would, yes. would have been to Roman civilization. Uh, yeah. That's or, one of the, the, the main things I remember from that book is just the, the hideously detailed descriptions of acts of Roman cruelty. Right. And, um, but, but we still, I mean, but what's interesting is that the, the, the Christians baptized the Roman empire, but the Rome, the Christians kept, uh, as much as they could ideas about greatness and glory, uh, even for, uh, worldly empires through, throughout the middle ages and, and into modernity. Mm -hmm. So it's, it, it's not like the, this, this, there is this huge juncture at the end of, of Roman pagan civilization, but there was a lot that was pr preserved as well. Andrew. Uh, yeah, I think a couple of things. The, 
the, the survival, despite everything, of, of at least part of the Roman cultural legacy uh, into the Middle Ages uh, basically provided a, a welcome counterpoint. Um, you had the Christian philosophizing, uh, which was saying, should we say one thing? But on the other hand, you had this, this older stranger and not always attractive, as you rightly point out, civilization. And if you like, a lot of stuff got snuck into our, in, into, in, 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 into our culture because it was very old. And so that meant that what might have become a sort of rather stifling theocratic uh, 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 sort of way of life did not. And I think, the, I think we owe the Romans that. The, the, the other, though, I think we owe the Romans lost, but as well as aqueducts, if anyone catches the reference. <laughs> uh, the, uh, uh, the, the other thing is that we did get from them a sense of, the, uh, of, of political organization. Um, the, uh, you know, Charlemagne, um, he, he, you know, he referred back to Rome. Uh, there was a belief that you got a degree of political legitimacy from Rome, and it was political legitimacy. There was a religious element, of course, which was later. Um, but uh, that mattered. Uh, the, 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 no, the, the notion of the, the, the empire and the order, um, that, that, came, that came from Rome. Yeah. So he, he supposedly what Charlemagne was a accidentally, uh, um, unbeknownst to him, crowned emperor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is sort of an unlikely story. But, but the, uh, that, that word, an emperor, you know, uh, being in that tradition was obviously hugely important to people for, for a very long time. It's why, Joe, some people say, well, the Roman Empire, you, you idiots and simpletons, it didn't really fall, you know. <laughs> it's, it uh, endured in the East for about a thousand more years, which is, which is true. And then you, you had this constant hearkening back and kind of efforts to reestablish or at least echo uh, the Roman emperor, uh, Empire. But it, it fell. I mean, it's, it's yeah. in the West, is, there's just no doubt that it fell. Yeah. Yeah. And we can get into the dark ages here in a minute here, guys. But one other point to make about Rome and the contribution, of course, is republicanism, the whole idea of mixed government. I mean, remember, Rome's got these these two consuls who are elected. They share power with the Senate. There's an independent judiciary. And that republic lasts for several hundred years. And that's mm -hmm. that's Cicero's great lament, isn't it? When Rome is moving from a republic into an empire and they're forgetting their republican ideas and ideals. And one of those big ideals is in Virgil, right, uh, in the Aeneid. It's pietas, the word we, we have here, piety. It means devotion, duty, sacrifice for the republic. And that virtue was, was really going by the boards by the time Cicero comes on the scene. And that's his great lament. And that's a warning for us, it seems to me now, as we think about our own you know, devotion to the Commonwealth. All right, so let's let's uh, button this this segment up with actually a triple barreled exit question. Going to you first, Joe. This is your first exit question ever on an editor's podcast, so don't don't mess it up. Okay, Plato or Aristotle? Which Aristotle? One? Pick one. Aristotle. 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 Hands down. Ca capsule. Capsule explanation. Two sentences. Capsule explanation is Aristotle. Um, no one in the ancient world thought more deeply and carefully about the nature of political societies and how to bring them about and to sustain them over the long haul. All right. MBD, we have an Aristotle on the board. 
Uh, I can't go with like Epictetus or you know, like the <laughs> trolley kind of jesterish Stoic. Um, no, I mean Aristotle over um, over Plato for sure. Uh, Plato's Plato's thought tends to lead people to um, invidious abstraction. Andrew. Uh, I I would I would agree. I'm afraid uh, I, I'm in 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 the Aristotle uh, camp, and particularly I love I shall steal Michael's phrase about invidious abstraction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So as as uh, I expected prior to this podcast, it's unanimous in favor of Aristotle. Uh, abstraction is dangerous. So Joe, back to you. Who was better? There's an impossible uh, one to answer. I'm not going to give you the uh, <laughs> what constitutes better. I'll let you decide the, what the standard is on your own. But who's better, the Greeks or the Romans? Who's better? I, I'm going to have to say the Romans were better because they, they sustained their initial political experiment much longer than the Greeks. And, that, and they gave us a great road system to boot. How about that? <laughs> MBD. Um. Oh man, tough. Um, the Romans, yeah. Um, for the infrastructure, I mean, like wow, it's we're all infrastructure people now. Well, no, it's, 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 aqueducts. It's, aqueducts. it's not just aqueducts, but I mean, it, build back better, build back. But better. I mean, when the when the Roman Empire when the when the Roman Empire fell, they stopped building solid material roofs in the in in what's now England. And reverted back to thatch cottages for over, th- mm-hmm. you know, thatched yeah. roofs for <laughs> over a millennia. Like that. Yeah. So, like, there was like amazing material civilizational progress under Rome yeah. that was, it was reversed in the early Middle Ages. And, and Rome goes from, from a city of a million people, like 30,000 or something, is just, yeah. just astonishing. Yeah. Andrew. I, I think the Romans have to have, have to win it. Um, partly, as, as 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 was mentioned, uh, the enormous technological achievements. Uh, I think also the uh, the way that they endured. Uh, I think that they, in the end, uh, it was the. I mean, I don't want to discount the Greeks. I'll get back to them in a second. Uh, but they, in many ways, laid the the backbone or formed the backbone of what became the West. Um, and admittedly, they incorporated uh, some Greek thinking into that. Um, the and, and we also have to look at the, the, the phenomenon of the Eastern Empire, which, of course, endured until, in fact, beyond 1453, if we, we look at bits and pieces of the Northern Black Sea, um, where you had a sort of fusion of Greek and Roman. But nevertheless, I think um, uh, it's Rome, and it's Rome as really the real foundation of European civilization, which of course ultimately becomes the West. So I'm going to make you unanimous again. I got to try harder on these questions. They're obviously too uh, uh, simplistic and, and easy. But yeah, the Romans, I mean, no one would ever dominate the Mediterranean the way they did. They did endure more than these squabbling um, city states uh, in, in Greece. So I go Roman as well. Now let's dig in a little bit more with the final extra question on this segment, Joe, on the Romans. Rate the Roman Empire from zero to 10. Zero, a disgusting and cruel military machine and nothing else. 10, a uh, incredible, inspiring champion of civilization. <laughs> I'm going to give them a five because on the one hand, the whole thing is based on slavery, human slavery and, and, and all the rest of it. But the, uh, 
the boy, those those as you say, those aqueducts. I mean, you, you just can't <laughs> those. I mean, come on, that's worth at least a five right there. <laughs> MVD. Um, it's it's yeah, I give the same five where it's it is fundamentally a military project, but uh, consider the alternatives. <laughs> Andrew. I will give them a six, just as we cannot continue with uh, unanimity the whole way through through this. Uh, and and all, all all Joe's comments, of course, about the the, the cruelty, uh, uh, which is, is astonishing of the Romans, and, and and what you might call the sort of not the horrors of slavery, but also the day to day just casual cruelty, which when you read some of their mm-hmm. stuff uh, takes what you know. But do we do we do we judge them by the standards of twenty twenty two? Um, no, I, I, I don't think we do. And um, so uh, I, I think for the endurance and, and for, uh, for, what they, for what they mean, what were to, what were come to mean, uh, I, w- I would give them six out of ten. So I, I, I'll go, go slightly different, but not that much different. I'm going to go four, which averages us out r- right at five. So this, this uh, answer is not that exciting either. I would downgrade a, a, a little bit. It was a military machine. I mean, that's what it was. It was an impressive military machine. And then when it, when it uh, lost uh, energy, then the whole thing uh, collapsed. And I am convinced by the argument, and this will be a segue to our, our next segment here, that it, ha- it had to collapse. I mean, it was uh, calamitous, uh, as MBD points out. You know, you go to, to uh, th- thatched huts in, uh, uh, in, in England. You have people, you know, you have these stashes, uh, the great um, troves for archaeologists, but these, these stashes of coins and other valuables where it, it's like the disorder was so bad, it'd be like all of us having to go and, you know, bury our silverware in the backyard for fear that so, someone was going to come just uh, take it from us. So it was, it was a calamitous fall, but it, it needed to happen. And what came next in the fullness of time would be better. So with that, let's pause and hear from our second sponsor this episode, Act and Unwind. There's news and information constantly coming at us from all sides. With this barrage of information, it's difficult to stay up to speed with everything that's happening in the world. Who can you trust to explain what's going on from a perspective that values both faith and freedom? That's where Act and Unwind comes in. Just as there's no other organization that brings you a perspective that values faith, liberty, and free enterprise, like the Acton Institute, there's no other podcast that tackles the issues of the day in quite the same way as Act and Unwind. Every Monday, you'll hear from host Eric Cohen and experts from the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty as they take you through the news of the week in a roundtable conversation, breaking down the issues and stories that matter and demonstrating the compatibility of faith, liberty, and free economic activity in a way that's clear, concise, and entertaining. Whether it's about politics, religion, or culture, you'll get Acton's unique outlook on the world, connecting good intentions with sound economics as it promotes a free and virtuous society characterized by individual liberty and sustained by religious principles. To subscribe to Acton Unwind, visit acton.org slash NR or just search Acton Unwind on your favorite podcast app. Acton Unwind, an ongoing conversation on a free and virtuous society. That's acton.org slash NR to subscribe to the Acton Unwind podcast. So MBD, let's uh, jump ahead to the Middle Ages, <clears throat> a time discounted uh, by many, but uh, we we get um, universities, we get uh, cathedrals, 
We get these uh, cities that insisted on their rights uh, over and uh, above uh, the uh, overweening uh, political authority and begin to carve out uh, space for commercial activity. How much do we owe to the Middle Ages? Uh, we owe a lot. I mean, you could have also mentioned hospitals, um, you know, which came out of the hospitaler movement. Um, we owe tremendous debt to the Middle Ages, and you know, I think you know you could look at to some of the the um, the signature medieval dramas in history that that people are taught about, whether it's the snows at Canossa or uh, the conflict between Henry II and Thomas Becket. Uh, in 1170, who will rid me? Will no one rid me of this tr- turbulent priest? And what you're seeing in in both those conflicts between uh, church and state authority is uh, the emergence of an, an, an formalization of the, the idea that ultimately, not just um, you know, we say we get the idea of consent. Uh, from the Greeks in government. Well, in a sense, the legacy of the middle ages is conscience and government, right? That, mm-hmm. uh, power is re- restrained by, uh, faith or by the, the other sword in the Gelasian diarchy. Um, and that the church, uh, has a say, you know, and in a sense that, um, and it, it, the church is not just the, um, the the pape the papacy, but eventually comes to mean the people themselves, the baptized, mm-hmm. and all eventually all citizens, um, and that it's not just their consent, but their their will for the common good. So I think that's a, that's a tremendous legacy of um, of the Middle Ages, and um, you know, of course, also it's it's a flourishing time for artwork for. Um, for military adventurism in the crusades. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's, there's a huge civilizational legacy that leaves a, a tremendous residue in the modern age. So Andrew, that, that, uh, what MBD was so eloquently describing there, that competition between church and state, it, it was ugly. <laughs> I, I, I mean, <laughs> uh, sometimes just, just astonishingly. So, but you, you, the secular authorities, you know, eventually, Prevail. Maybe we'll get to that a, l- a little bit more in, in our, our our next segment. But but this this competition and this this di- dichotomy is is ends up being absolutely crucial to the the Western legacy and the world we live in today. Yeah, ab- absolutely. I mean, I think I, pr- I probably see Henry II in a rather different way to Michael. In the to me. What he was doing was assert, asserting. I mean, he sort of repented, unfortunately. But the the uh, <laughs> in, in, in what he was doing was saying that the supreme lawmaking authority in any state should be that state. Um, it shouldn't be uh, governed by some uh, foreign um, organization. But um, <laughs> but at the same point, there is a valid. Michael makes a very important point. Is that the the the, the establishment of, of, of Christianity did um, it produced the internal break, if you like, on um, the those in charge, which meant that unlike the Romans 
who might have felt that they were accountable to their ancestors, but their ancestors weren't around. And it, you know, if you look at the brutality and the savagery of the of, of the Middle Ages, uh, it's not always apparent. But the idea that there was some external retra- restraint on human behaviour um, was. Um, I think an important part of that legacy. Yeah, you might, you might, you're the king, and you might might have uh, killed your your uh, brother-in-law, but you might have to repent. Exactly. Exactly. Well, there's also parts. And 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 you know, it it, it it fulfilled a very very useful function. And I think that you know we've we've now, if I can tell a story, we we have moved on. At the one of the rare times I've been censored at, at, at National Review was by our dear colleague, uh, Catherine Lopez, and I'd written a piece in which I used the term medieval in a derogatory way. <laughs> and, and that was promptly cut out. And, 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 and we, 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 we settled on Neanderthal instead. <laughs> uh, but they left an enormous civilizational, uh, civilizational impact. I mean, we're, we're uh, it was Jung that said, not a, not in a complimentary way, that the Middle Ages carry on today. But 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 more than that, again, it was the it was the establishment of Europe. It was the establishment of the notion of uh, the, the notion of Christendom, uh, the universities and the hospitals, and the the spreading out of this uh, of this civilization. Uh, Michael mentioned the Crusades. We should remember also that the Crusades also happened in uh, in, in 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 northeastern Europe. There were the Baltic Crusades, um, which were a pretty rough uh, affair. And there were also it wasn't only a time, as again you alluded to this, of of, of monarchs and, and 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 popes, but you also had the first sort of signs of city state that that the Hans- you had the beginnings of the Hanseatic League. Um, uh, you had the the, Democrat, the quasi-democratic experiment in Novgorod in Russia, uh, a, a route, a, a road, alas, not taken, or a, lo- a road torn up, actually, by Ivan the Terrible. So it was a very, very interesting period. So, uh, sorry, Amidi, did you do you want to get... Yeah, you know, I, I just wanted to add one little thing about the... It's not just the conflict between... Uh, you know, sometimes the conflict between church and state could take the form of just popes and emperors, or popes and kings, or priests and kings... But often, you know, it could take the a pincer movement of a pope and the people versus rulers. You know, um, you know, when a, a pope lays down an interdict, for instance, and I mean, in a sense, what you saw was the church fumbling its way towards the ideas of balance of power in Europe, which would become crucial in the modern age as well. Uh, and um, yeah, it's. Um, uh, there's interesting too. There's a, there's a parallel legacy in Islam where you know uh, in the same time period where uh, sultans and uh, and others are being called to the carpet by caliphs and and other religious uh, figures. So it is kind of a pan medieval legacy that this this contest between religion and state. So I, I have to say, Joe. Uh, come to you, but the Crusades were just monstrous. Even before they uh, totally went off the rails, which they they had by the fourth fourth or fifth one, and, and then these internal crusades against heretics were just, they were just awful. Um, but, we, Joe, we, we do have, you know, you look at Sainte-Chapelle 
And you know, Louis, Louis the Ninth gets in possession of these supposed relics. He needs a proper place to to house them. And this is just, it's amazing, right? It's just absolutely the civilizational competence that go, that goes into that, the craftsmanship that that goes uh, um, into it. You know, all, all motivated by trying to get some sense, right, uh, of this this uh, realm above us, he- heaven here on earth, and yeah. and succeeds succeeds at a certain level. Yes. I think one of the ways to appreciate the achievements of the Middle Ages, uh, gentlemen, is to also just reflect for a moment on the early portion of that, that what we know is the, what we call the Dark Ages, right? Because it really was pretty dark. <laughs> the, the, the life for the average European really was an exercise in survival because you have this breakdown in law and order. And, and a lot of these things relate actually to Washington, D.C., where I'm living right now. The breakdown in law and order, famines and plagues, uh, 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 the drainage system isn't working anywhere. The Roman roads are in a state of, of disrepair. The European harbors are, are unworkable. And uh, as someone mentioned earlier, bricklaying, the art of bricklaying is lost. So you got huge problems. And what does the mm-hmm. church do in an amazing way? It inherits that. And now it begins to civilize and to transform the tribalism of Europe, doesn't it? The, the tribalism of Europe, and it brings now Roman law and Christian law and some pagan law, it brings it together, laws that, were, that were, weren't written down, and now they're getting a legal code, a legal written code, the potential of your, the protection of your property rights. These are major, major advances, and the church is the only institution standing that can do it, right? Because mm-hmm. they're, they're the educated guys, the, uh, the priests, the bishops, the cardinals. They're literate. And uh, this may sound strange coming from a Protestant. We've got to say two cheers for the monastic movement, because at Mm -hmm. its best, if those monks in those decades, say uh, centuries between, say, 500 and 800 uh, A.D., if they were not preserving those ancient classical texts, we we just probably wouldn't have them. And they're devoting their lives to preserving that. And that, of course, is going to help uh, lead to a, a real revival with the Renaissance. So that all is worth saying. Yeah, and an ethic of work. Um, and an ethic of work, exactly yeah. right. So maybe Joe's uh, maybe he's tipped his hand on his answer to this MBD, but exit question to you. Were the Dark Ages dark? <laughs> um, I, I, would, I would say the early Middle Ages were arguably pretty dark as they were marked by so much disorder and violence before the new civilization began solidifying itself. But by 1295, when you're getting Thomas Aquinas composing the Summa Theologica and Chartres Cathedral being built, I mean, you're in an age of uh, incredible uh, intellectual, spiritual, and artistic achievement. Andrew? Uh, I mean, again, I would agree that the, 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 the Dark Ages, as we, conven- as we conventionally define them, uh, were, 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 were dark. I would take a slightly less sunny view of the, of, of, of the Middle Ages. Um, I would say that uh, it was the beginning of the dawn, and um, there were some stupendous achievements, as, 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 we, all, as we all agree. Um, but the Middle Ages could be uh, a very dark, uh, and for all its artistic and cultural glory, uh, it could be a, a, a very, very dark place. Um, and we saw uh, it, it, towards the end of the Middle Ages, you saw, you, you saw 
savage sort of millenarian peasant risings in Germany, which were to foreshadow uh, the disasters of the 20th century uh, in some respects. And so I, I, I would describe it as, you know, when, you, when, when you're waiting for the dawn to break and you're seeing bits of light here and there. The rosy-fingered rosy dawn, as Homer Homer puts it. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. But uh, so certainly a lot to be said for it. But we shouldn't uh, we, we we shouldn't move from the extreme of of saying you know medieval being a bad word, if you like, uh, to, to 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 overpraising it. Yeah. So so Joe, again, we we have a, a rough consensus, but Andrew is a a, a tick tick more uh, dark uh, than <laughs> than uh, MBD. Where are you? Well, the Dark Ages were pretty dark because the, 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 the way that you brought about justice there among in the tribal society was the blood feud. You just took the guy out. And one of the things that the, that the church did do was to change that and to say, no, we're not going to kill each other over, over differences here, over family uh, disputes. We're going to take it to court. <laughs> take it to court. Uh, but, the, but to emphasize the darkness, um, I read the other day that um, uh, the English records show us that only one in every hundred murderers was ever brought to justice. Mm -hmm. Sounds like Washington, D.C. right now. Absolutely dark. And so, but I have to qualify. We have to qualify, as you say, Rich, the Middle Ages, um, the, not just the Crusades, but the whole idea of a unified Christendom that could only maintain its unity, unity through coercion. And that is the great failure in my mind of Christendom. It cannot maintain its spiritual unity without uh, oppressing, persecuting those who disagree with the established religious political establishment there. That's a problem. Yeah, uh, yeah I'm with Andrew. I, I think they're, they're pretty dark. I mean, just, just uh, it was a time of savagery. I mean, just read about the, the plague. It's just horrible. And, you know, the, the, the only response people could have is, you know, flagellate themselves in the streets to try to appease, you know, what, what, whatever is causing this. So yeah. in, in many respects, just uh, in, in most respects, most respects, a terrible time, but there, there was the, uh, the, the beginnings of something better with that. Let me pause and we will hear from our third sponsor, this episode, Babel. One of the most exciting things about a new year is that you have no idea what adventures are in store for you from new travel experiences to new jobs or picking up new skills. There's no better way to prepare for 2023 than by learning a new language with Babbel. Babbel is a language learning app that sold more than 10 million subscriptions. Thanks to Babbel's addictively fun and easy bite-sized language lessons, you can feel confident no matter where the new year takes you. With Babbel, you only need 10 minutes to complete a lesson so you can start having real-life conversations in a new language in as little as three weeks. Other language learning apps use AI for the lesson plans, but Babbel lessons were created by over 150 language experts and voiced by real native speakers, not computers. Their teaching method has been scientifically proven to be effective with Babbel. You can choose from 14 different languages, plus Babbel's speech recognition technology helps you to improve your pronunciation and accent. There are so many ways to learn with Babbel. In addition to lessons, you can access podcasts, games, video stories, and even live classes. Plus, it comes with a 20-day money-back guarantee. Start your new language learning journey today with Babbel. Right now, get up to 55% off your subscription when you go to babbel.com slash editors, that's babbel.com slash editors for up to 55% off your subscription. Babbel, language for life. So, Andrew, this, this dawn does come and, um, you know, we, we get the, uh, we get the, the uh, Renaissance, uh, et cetera. 
But the the real fundamental shift that gives us this kind of hockey stick of uh, human economic and social development comes with uh, the Dutch, with the with the English, and uh, with the uh, industrial revolution. And and what really happens, and I, I think this is uh, like one of the key movements in, in world history is the center of the West goes from the Mediterranean uh, to the, to the Atlantic. Yes, I, I, I would absolutely agree. Um, the, um, and you know, it was, it was, uh, I mean, I, I mean, why it happened uh, th- th- that, that way is I, I, I think that the, the societies of Northwestern Europe um, had become more dynamic um, dare one say that the word Protestantism um, made a difference, and that what you'd also sorry, sorry MBD, I, I know you have a lot of responses coming. I, I will give you time. <laughs> <laughs> um, but 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 but, but also, Christendom was corrupt, and and Protestantism led to the, the modern world. But go, go ahead, keep keep going. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not. but they but 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 I think it helped. Um, and um, but also, you know, we, the, the the idea of the industrial revolution or even the Enlightenment as, as, as a sudden break, um, I think, is a mistake. I mean, we had been seeing steady progress really from the Renaissance onwards, and that, together with the technologies of seafaring, uh, the uh, uh, more stable political orders. Uh, in in and a more open political order in places such as uh, such as England and and and, and Holland um, provided a um, the provide pro- provided the right platform for this sudden period of this extra- for the hockey st- the, the hockey stick to begin plus having some of the right raw materials um, so yes it was a, a, a remarkable a remarkable period but it was longer than people think it wasn't just suddenly. Uh, James Watt, you know, looking at a kettle. Um, so, so Joe, do you, do you do you agree with that? And I'll, I'll just pitch in here. I, I there's this Rembrandt painting I love, the the Night Watch, which is a, a uh, uh, this this little little troop um, uh, mar- marching out at, at night, and just a, just a, a vivid picture of kind of civil society at work and this kind of new. Uh, ideal. Deidre McCloskey has written about this uh, very importantly and, and very powerfully. It's it's no longer just the priesthood. It's no longer just a, a warrior aristocracy. It's no no longer royalty. There are these kind of commercial oriented folks who are rising to have uh, dignity and importance as well. Yes, and I'd like to draw our attention, particularly to Great Britain, because it really is at the center of this uh, sea change. And I think it's both a political sea change and also, of course, it, with the Industrial Revolution, the Scientific Revolution, uh, technological sea change. But the political sea change is also important just to mention here, because when you get to the 17th century and you have the, the, the intellectual debate, really, the conflict between Hobbes's view, the Leviathan, the all-powerful state, uh, versus a John Locke, government by consent of the government and re- uh, governed and religious freedom – and Locke's view will essentially win out in the Glorious Revolution, 1688. A hundred years later, the Americans will, will take that and run with it. But that political revolution um, in Britain is crucial, as establishing a constitutional order, putting limits on, on the political authority. Uh, and then you join that now, that kind of political freedom with, with economic freedom, Adam Smith, 
and the, and the technological revolution. Great Britain, of course, is at, at the tip of the spear of the industrial revolution for all kinds of reasons. So these two things working together, the political freedom, the economic freedom and dynamism, really make Great Britain uh, a, a remarkable player on the world stage in the beginning in the uh, 17th into the 18th, 19th centuries, of course. So MBD, obviously feel free to respond to anything you've heard, but your gloss on the, the rise of modernity. Um, listen, it wasn't without its, its ruptures. I mean, there are lots of people who, uh, paid costs initially at the beginning before the, the hockey stick development mm-hmm. occurred. People who were, you know, chased off their, their land, uh, could no longer farm on common land, uh, had to emigrate. Uh, one, I mean, basically one of the subsidies for the, uh, the revolution that was being especially bright in the British empire was the opening of the new world to migration for people that were being kicked out of their traditional way of life, whether uh, on the small holdings that were being converted into larger uh, agricultural concerns or people who weren't uh, willing to build a new life uh, the way it was being built in the cities and slums. Um, so, you know, we, I'm very thankful for the incredible rise of living standards that began then, but, uh, the initial transition, the initial part of the revolution was hugely disruptive and there were losers at the beginning of it. Yes. Um, yeah. And, and Andrew, we, we have, um, you know, jo- Joe mentions the, the glorious revolution, which is, I think is one of the, the key inflection points of the development of the West, but we, we have a, a, another, uh, you know, later, but um, a, another kind of modern revolution or modernizing revolution in the French Revolution, which completely goes off the rails, obviously, and points to a, a, a future uh, in, in the modern West that will um, be, be a, a version of its own uh, dark ages and, and uh, many respects even more hideous. Yes, uh, I mean the French Revolution in many ways. Not I, well, no, more hideous, perhaps not quite. But 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 the French Revolution was essentially the the, the reassertion of irrationalism, not rationalism. Um, in that you that, that that you saw the rise of political religion, and political religion, of course, which was used to give absolution to the uh, the most um, appalling crimes. And um, so, um, uh, you, you know, and Napoleon, you know, restored a degree of order and all the rest of it. But um, there is, I think there's no doubt that the events of, uh, you, you know, the, 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 the terror, uh, you know, the Solzhenitsyn's famous, when, when he went to France, he insisted on going to the Vendée where there was the, the, the failed counter-revolution uh, against the French Revolution. And he referred then to referring to the Soviet Union is that this is where it all began. So there was, I think, a, a, a divergence between the Anglo, what became the Anglo-American tradition, um, which took the best of the philosophical uh, developments from that and, and political developments from that era and ran with it. And then there was, if you like, the French version, which... Uh, very, which within 
months of the storming or a year maybe of the storming the Bastille had taken things in a very, very, very different direction. Yes. Yeah, so, Joe, um, my, my, my idea is that the, the heart of the West is really the, the English-speaking world and Anglo-America. It was England that uh, for a, a long while there was leader of the West. Now it's the, the United States. But that is, is the best tradition and, and fortunately has, has been the, the, the most uh, powerful, uh, the two most powerful political actors in, in the West as well. Yes, I, I agree with that. And I want to uh, supplement what Andrew just said here. We, we don't want to miss one of the major reasons that the French Revolution collapsed into, into chaos, into tyranny. Uh, it was thoroughly anti-Christian. It was anti-Catholic. It was anti-Christian. Uh, we'll strangle the last king with the guts of the last priest. That's their rallying cry. And the, you contrast that with the American Revolution, where faith and freedom are essentially uh, uh, bound at the hip. They're, they're moving arm in arm. Uh, faith supports the, the, the revolution and the principles of, of government by consent. But the French are, ant, are deeply anti-religious, anti-tradition. And I'll quote you here quickly from uh, the Baron de Holbach, a leading French philosopher, 1772, in his book Common Sense. He says, to learn the true principles of morality, men have no need of theology, of revelation, or gods. They have need only of reason. They have only to enter into themselves to reflect upon their own nature, and they'll see the good. Well, <laughs> that's a problem. That's one of the reasons the French Revolution went the direction that it went into the guillotine, and the American Revolution didn't. And I think that does help to explain the incredible success of that Anglo-American tradition. The Glorious Revolution in 1688 was not anti-religious at all. These principles of, of government by consent, the separation of powers, freedom of conscience, they grew out of the soil of biblical religion. And that's, that's worth putting on the table. So, MBD, ask a question to you. The Enlightenment, good or bad? <laughs> too early. Too, too early. Uh, too early uh, um, listen, I, I just want to stick up uh, for for the non-English. Uh, just we went on and on and on about about uh, the Angles who are actually disciplined and ruled by Germans. But uh, you know, not everything. Uh, the rest of Europe was not in a dark age. I mean, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth was arguably the most mm -hmm. liberal and wisely ruled polity in Europe in uh, mm -hmm. its heyday. Uh, the Austro-Hungarian Empire achieved uh, unbelievable results of, of, of advancing civilization. Uh, and But these were disrupted by the kind of um, uh, not just internal... Uh, divisions and, and, and nationalisms, uh, but by the the corruptive totalitarian side of, of revolutionary powers in the uh, 19th and 20th century. Uh, mm -hmm. That legacy can't be forgotten because the English legacy isn't just immediately transferable now to Austria or Hungary. Um, and, and on the side of the Catholic powers, uh, you know, it was France and Spain that, uh, started to Christianize the inhabitants of the new world uh, mm -hmm. while the Protestants were just happy to exploit them uh, mm -hmm. after the same yes, manner, that's, that's true. after yeah. the same manner they would in, uh, in Ireland. Um, so, uh, you know, there's uh, the, like the Spanish empire has a tremendous legacy still, even in the United States today, all along the missions founded all along the West coast 
uh, and in the Southwest, uh, we owe partially to them. Um, so let's not forget the rest of the, the legacy of Europe in this time period. Corrective, corrective accepted. A- Andrew, ask a question, uh, enlightenment, good or bad? <laughs> uh, good. Yep. Okay, I will let, put, let me answer it this way. Uh, French Enlightenment, bad. Mm-hmm. Yes. English Enlightenment, I'd say two cheers, pretty good. Uh, American Enlightenment, yeah. at least, I'd say two and a half cheers, really good. Who, who qualifies as the American Enlightenment? What's that? Who qualifies for the American Enlightenment? Are you talking about like the founders or? Yeah, I'm talking about Madison, Jefferson, uh, Adams. That's what I would oh, say. Yeah. I was worried you were talking about like Dewey and in the. No, 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 I'm not a Dewey guy. No, 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 founders. Okay. So, so, so MBD. So, where, where, how, how would you? So, Joe's like French Enlightenment, terrible. Uh, English Enlightenment two and American Enlightenment two and a half. Do you do you accept that broadly or it, correctives to that? What, what the, I mean, you also have to look at, you know, Kant. I mean, I mean, the later figures, um, that introduced this, something about the enlightenment has also left a residue of civilizational self doubt that I think is, is being Mm -hmm. fully expressed, uh, especially after the two world wars. Um, and, um, yeah, I don't, I don't, um, so I, th- I think there is a, uh, if, um, Andrew could say that the middle ages were the, the rosy fingered dawn before the big light, there's also a cloud or a shade mm-hmm. hanging with mm-hmm. the enlightenment that is, um, yeah. still hanging over us today. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, I, I accept, uh, I accept Joe's answer and associate myself with it. With that quick plug for NR plus digital subscription service, national review.com your way around our metered paywall, your way to see many fewer ads. If you sign up and log in and your way to dig deeper into our community and importantly support our valuable journalism. So if you have not signed up for NR plus, you still have a few days here this year to get in under the wire and become a 2022 member of NR plus. So please consider doing it and, and uh, do the right thing. So MBD, let's, uh, you, you uh, forecast that, that we, we, uh, that we have this, this dark cloud. I mean, we see it in the um, uh, 20th century, just, just played out in a horrific manner in the, the heartland of Europe. Um, the uh, democratic powers win win World War II. We've had uh, win win the Cold War, and um, we've had this uh, Ukraine aside uh, in the scheme of things, this amazing period of um, peace in in Europe and, and around the rest of the world. But there's this uh, um, uh, haze of, of self doubt about the West, whether it still retain, retains its. Uh, vitality and self-confidence. There are all sorts of metrics you can uh, point to that indicate this, you know, fertility rates would, would be one of them, but where, if, um, if, if we took, you know, the first 45 minutes of this podcast, you know, the, the West up from, you know, the Greek city states to the pinnacle of its power, where, where is it now? Where's the West now? Uh, you know, there's a, there is a, a, a splinter of my thought, that just thinks the bullet went into the Western 
head uh, in 1914, uh, and we're living with the ruins uh, moldering among us ever since uh, that um, the fratricidal, you know, the God's punishment for, for fratricide is spiritual death. Um, and that's what we spent the 20th century doing was killing each other. Um, and, you know, there's the, the, the darkest edge of that for me would be like thinking of, you know, what was the legacy of the Roman empire afterward? You know, we talked about all these things that left over to successor civilizations, but what happened to the civilization itself? It's like, well, where would you point? Would it be to the Romanized, you know, vlocks? who populate Romania today and basically constitute a barely literate criminal class that is parasitic on most of Europe. Uh, is that what we're fated for uh, as the inheritors of, of the British and subsequent American empires as we degenerate? I, I fear that um, on the other side, much brighter um you know, we face tremendous challenges, and, and I think the biggest challenge we face today is this shade of doubt about whether we should continue existing expressed, expressed in our uh, suicidal fertility rate. Um, but the fact is, like, we still have this incredible civilizational legacy on the shelf waiting to inspire us, whether that's chasing the glories of empire building or the glories of um, holiness and spiritual enlightenment by turning back to God. Um, it's all there for us if we're ready to take it up. So I hope we do. So Joe, what do you think of MBD's notion that uh, 1914 could have been a key inflection point from which we haven't yet recovered? That is a fascinating proposition, and it has some explanatory power, you could argue, because some historians will say that the First World War this was the single most important reason for the death of the idea of heroism. It, mm -hmm. it seemed to usher in a whole season of cynicism and moral doubt. And that's where, if I could, if I could refer to my, my literary friends, J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis, I think that that's what these guys and their, and their fellowship, their inklings, that's what they're pushing back against in the 1930s and 40s. They're trying to recover, I think, that classical Christian tradition and using, using literature uh, and, and great mythic storytelling to do it. So I think I think there's a lot there. I think you're right. The 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 modern era, the the mutual suicide pact of the First World War did great damage to, to the to the European mind. It was almost like the shell shocked uh, soldier was kind of a walking metaphor for many Europeans. Mm -hmm. uh, so where, where where does that leave us? Well, we don't in America, especially if America is still at, at the uh, the tip of the spear of Western civilization, the lead nation in the West still. Um, if America can't uh, affirm, reaffirm, recover its, its founding principles, its religious and political ideals, if it holds them in contempt, that then, we're, then it looks to me like a, a long road downward, a, a decline. How you get off that exit ramp, what's the exit ramp for that? I don't know. But I'll, I will quote you from, uh, from the Aeneid, uh, from the Sibyl, this revered prophet, from the ancient world, the warning she gives to Aeneas if he's tempted to drift from his course. She says, man of Troy, the descent to the underworld is easy. <laughs> That's worth repeating. The descent to the underworld is easy. Night and day, the gates 
of shadowy death stand open wide, but to retrace your steps, to climb back to the upper air. There the struggle, there the labor lies. Mm-hmm. So a, a great book actually on, on this this theme of how uh, irony and the like really entered into the, the center of the the, the Western tradition with the war is um, The Great War in Modern Memory by Paul Fussell. Yes. Uh, Andrew. Well, that's an absolutely fabulous book, by the way. Um, people, people who haven't read it uh, should, should, should read it. Uh, I, I think that there's a lot, uh, as always, to what Michael says. And that 1914, I mean, there, there's certainly been, if, if you look at what happened in the 15 years before uh, 1914, there was a lot of turbulence and doubt uh, coming into Western civilization, uh, you know, whether you're talking about London or, in a way, St. Petersburg, you can go the whole way across. But I do think that the the physical uh, destruction, and I think irony has been around uh, a, a, a long, long time. I mean, if you look at restoration, dra- the, the, the dramas or even some of the poetry of restoration in England in the 17th century, there was plenty of it there. Um, but I do think that um, the catastrophe of 1914 and what came on from it, uh, it, it, it perhaps punctured some overweening self-confidence, um, but it rather overdid it. And um, it, uh, it, 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 it sort of undermined, it began, well, and the catastrophes that followed, I think you have to see them as one. Um, the, uh, and some of them were intellectual and some of them were political and military. Um, but it it, 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 it started asking some, as a result of it, was some very awkward questions began to be asked very loudly about the value of our civilization. And I think that um, uh, are we, you know, I think we have, we have achieved great things since 1914 and our technological achievements are extraordinary. Uh, how people live compared with how they lived in 1913 is remarkable, and this is a, a, essentially a Western-led progress, and it has spread across the world. Um, I don't see in any way uh, falling birth rights, uh, birth rates, as a expression of a lack of confidence. I see them as an expression of confidence that uh, people are, uh, people don't you know believe that they could be secure without sort of uh, ten children to see them through their dotage. And, um, but I, I think that what we are now seeing in the West, and more in the West perhaps than elsewhere, is this corrosive self-doubt, uh, which is being also played for political advantage by various, you know, by various groups within our own uh, polity, and that can take us to a very dark place. So MBD, we have these just um, disturbing and ridiculous trends all around us. We were talking before we started to record, there's a recommendation that the Marine Corps should do away with yes, sir, and yes, ma'am to avoid misgendering of superiors. We obviously have all all the trans insanity and their critics of of these trends will say that this is the fall. This is the fall of, of Western Civilization, but what? But how much do these? You know, d- does uh, uh, letting males compete in female sports like 
how much does that matter in the scheme of things? I mean, can can is are, are we are we so great and so powerful that we are uh, a, allowed to I- indulge in these absurdities, or are they more threatening than that? Um, both. I mean, we are. Uh, I mean, when you have security and power, you can have uh, a ruinous foreign policy that doesn't inflict costs on your people and you don't get strung up by your um, tendons in the public square, you get a think tank job. Um, you know, that's, that's, that's how good life is in the West, right? Uh, or in, in, in America at this point. Um, but, uh, but Fooling around with bad ideas is dangerous, right? I mean, I, I think, and that's been a kind of a theme of the conservative movement, you know, that sometimes hysterically will, you know, go all the way back to Willem of Ockham to start blaming, you know, when, uh, when one conservative thinker was trying to contemplate the horrors of total warfare in World War II, you know, he traced it back to the Middle Ages. Mm-hmm. There's a, there was an idea, a kernel of something that allowed men to do this. And I do think, um, uh, I don't know. I think after the two world wars, we are suffering some kind of head trauma in, in the West. And, um, you know, it reminds me of Chesterton's famous, uh, flourish that Georgia Maloney quoted in her speech a few years ago that everything will be denied and everything will become a creed that, uh, you know, um, it will be denied that existence itself is real and it, um, and it'll become a dogma to suggest that there is reality at all. And, you know, that's where he, he goes into the fires will be kindled to testify that two and two make four. Uh, that is kind of the days we are living in now. Um, mm-hmm. and, Um, and I don't, uh, I don't know where it ends, uh, but I do know, I do have, uh, I do have a belief that, um, there is a kind of great buildup, um, of demand for cultural, uh, renewal and uh, a renewed bout of economic progress. Uh, and that these things would go together. Um, I do think that demand is, is out there that there are people looking around and saying, like, if you look at the way civil society is kind of crumbling people in, uh, social atomization, the incredible, uh, toll of drug addiction and number of lives in the United States, that there's this hunger for, um, for cultural renewal. And I think it'll come, uh, probably with with a big big bout of economic progress. So I'm, I'm hoping for for something like a mini renaissance in a roaring twenties all at once. Mm-hmm. So th- there's a lot of crazy stuff in that Richard Weaver book. But by, by the way, a, a yeah. great a great genius, but uh, a, a, a little bit cranky. So so Joe, one thing that said. <laughs> well, I was the one that said I was the one that said Americans are going to become the next Romanians, just a yeah. cr- bunch of <laughs> criminal gangsters. <laughs> Um, so, so Joe, one thing that set the West apart, we d- didn't quite hit, hit on it was this, this questing spirit, 
uh, obviously that, that le leads to exploration in the, the new world and was driven in part by the pluralism of the Western system as it developed after Rome. You know, if you're Christopher Columbus and one court won't, won't fund you, you just go to the next one and eventually you're going to find someone <laughs> and you get this amazing uh, competition and, and all, all sorts of realms, political, economic, yeah. technological. But I think, you know, that, that questing spirit, yes. maybe it's been dulled a little bit, but I think it's still it's still there. It's still with us. It's still a major character, uh, characteristic of our civilization. Yes, I agree. I mean, when you think about the, the periods in Western history that, where there's a, just great leaps forward in terms of technology or in politics, that, that desire to know, to, to know the truth about ourselves, about our world is really powerful. And there's a wonderful line from Isaac Newton where he said, uh, Plato is my friend, Aristotle is my friend, but my greatest friend is truth. And that and that is your desire, that gives a man or a woman a kind of courage to pursue the truth. Uh, and so that's that dynamism, that, that, that spirit of discovery, that willingness to sacrifice, to, to figure out, to solve the problem, that is really a Western trait. Um, it is a remarkable characteristic. It has helped to set the West apart, I think, from virtually every other civilization. And I think you're right, Rich. I think we definitely still have it, but I do think the key is going to be education. And this is where our friend C.S. Lewis is so helpful because, you know, in the 1940s, he's warning about the direction of education in England and what, what the little textbooks are doing uh, to young people in making them cynics, not believing in truth, not wanting to pursue truth. And that's what he meant by the abolition of man. We, uh, we make men without chests, he said, you know, the chest being the symbolic of your your desire for truth, for virtue, courage, conscience. We make men without chests, and then well, we, we dehumanize. We, de we dehumanize the next generation. So education is the key here, I think. If there's going to be some kind of uh, cultural renewal, we certainly need a, we certainly need a spiritual renewal uh, along with this, uh, but we've got to somehow figure out how we're going to expose more and more young people to a classical Christian tradition and, and the love of truth and the pursuit of truth being at the heart of it. Here, here. So Andrew Studdiford, exit question to you. Do not mess this one up, Andrew. 50 years from now, the West will still be great, yes or no? <laughs> <laughs> or, 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 or will we just be cooking scraps of meat uh, amid the ruins? Um, I think I think the West will be great, um, but it uh, will it will no longer have the domination that it has today. So great, but diminished, Joe. I think relative to other uh, uh, cultures and civilizations, the, the West, and I'm being hopeful here, the West will be great because the alternatives are, are, are going to burn themselves out as they have done historically. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hang my hat on uh, continued greatness in a political sense, and I'm going to hope for that in, a, in an economic, moral, and spiritual sense relative to the alternatives. So, MBD, we have some cautious optimism um, on the table. So, uh, the West will be even more, uh, preeminent in 50 years than it is now. Um, I think China will, China will fall off. China will fall off and it will become clear that Africa cannot get its, uh, act together on, on good government. Uh, uh, and 
And so it'll just be chaos. I think we, I think we tend to underestimate the absolute mediocrity of the world outside of mm-hmm. uh, America and Europe. Uh, and even within Europe, um, you know, most of the culture points back to Hollywood, Washington, DC, and New York, mm-hmm. uh, with mm-hmm. London as a tiny adjunct. Um, you know, we are still the le- the leaders and I, I just don't see anything like a fit challenger. There's nothing like, you know, there's nothing like the Islamic empire that was emerging at the beginning of the middle ages to challenge mm-hmm. the West, which was a real challenge. Yeah. Emerge, merge quickly Go, goes to how things can change quickly though. Out of like nowhere. That's, that's true. But, um, I, I just don't see it. Yeah. So I, I basically, uh, ag- agree with, uh, with everyone. I, I think the West will still be great. We have to avoid the key thing is losing a war, uh, with China, a major war with China. So either don't fight it, or if you're going to fight it, you, you got to win it. So that's it for us almost for this entire year. We have one end of year podcast remaining. You've been listening to a national review podcast and your rebroadcast retransmission or count this game without the express written permission of national review magazine is strictly prohibited this podcast has been produced by the incomparable sarah shuddy who makes it sound better than we deserve thanks to andrew thanks to joe thanks to mbd really a, a marvelous and fascinating conversation thanks to the fire act and unwind and babble and thanks especially to all of you for listening we're the editors we'll see you next time